Let's take our Bibles then and open them at Romans chapter 11 and let's seek God's help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, what we study tonight is your living, breathing communication to us. Through the preached word, we pray that we will be changed by it, be transformed as it impacts our lives. Be pleased, Lord God, to grant understanding to us and a willingness to apply this truth to our everyday living and all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're considering, continuing tonight our consideration of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we've come to chapter 11. And I want to begin by quoting Martin Luther. Luther writes this, This letter to the church at Rome is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And I hope that over these past weeks, you've been discovering the truth of Luther's words as you followed this series of sermons. Tonight we're at chapter 11 and uh, I'm understating this when I say that this is a chapter that has caused a lot of disagreement and I fully understand why. The, the, the famous Southern Presbyterian theologian James Henley Thornwell, he received a letter one day when he was about 40 years old. It was from a man inquiring as to what his views were with regard to the end times, and especially what his views were with regard to Romans chapter 11. Thornwell wrote back and said, I'm only 40 years old, and I consider that I'm far too young to have an answer to that question. Well, I'm only a couple of years older than he is. <laughs> but I was very encouraged by his remark. What we have in Romans chapter 1 through to chapter 8 is the Apostle Paul giving a very comprehensive, systematic statement of the gospel. That our being in a right relationship with God is only through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. The question then arises that if that's the gospel, how is it that comparatively few of the Jews in Paul's day and in ours believe it? Now, we find the answer in chapters 9 through to chapter 11. Chapter 9 shows that God never promised to save all the seed of Abraham. He never promised to save all Israel. In chapter 10, Paul talks about Israel's unbelief in all its dreadful reality. The Jews had heard the gospel, but had not believed it. 
And so the question to be answered now is, is it all over as far as the Jews are concerned? Are the Jews finished? Have the Jews been rejected by God? And that's the question Paul answers in our passage tonight in chapter 11. And if you're taking notes or if you're using your journal, I've divided the passage into three sections under three headings. First of all, the position of the Jews in Paul's day and ours. Secondly, the position of believing Jews in Paul's day and ours. And thirdly, the position of believing Gentiles in Paul's day and ours. So first of all, the position of the Jews in Paul's day and ours. Now there's no doubt that the Jews are a unique people. They can trace their lineage back thousands of years to one man, Abraham. And it was into the Jewish tribe of Judah that the Son of God, our Savior, was born. And yet after witnessing for centuries God fulfilling the promises for them, and even after numerous deliverances and restorations, after constant rebellion and disobedience, listen from the mouth of Paul a description of their spiritual state in his day and still sadly in our day. Take a look at chapter 9. Just flick back. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. The people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. I jump to chapter 10 and verse 3. Chapter 10 and verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here was and still is the problem. They were and are not prepared to proclaim chapter 10 and verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Chapter 10, verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. The Jews as a people didn't love the gospel message. They loved the law. They loved the ceremony. They loved the ritual. When confronted with Jesus of Nazareth and the apostles' preaching of Christ, Jews rejected the reality of who Jesus was and his saving work. They insisted instead on securing righteousness with God based on works of the law. As far as they were concerned, the important things were the temple, the law, the religious calendar, and circumcision. They were more important to them than the one who had so recently come among them. And as you read the Gospels, you experience the tragic story of the disputes between Israel's religious leaders and her Messiah. In rejecting her Messiah and his righteousness, Israel was seeking to establish her own right standing with God. 
by all the religious practices of Judaism rather than by faith in the one who had come. The Jews had grown so calloused in their hearts that when Jesus Christ, their Messiah, came to the earth, they crucified him. They still would crucify him today. They ignored the truth of the gospel, and they still do. Who are they looking for today? What do the Jews as a nation still seek? What do they still hope to happen? They're still looking for Messiah. And even though God continually showed his love for them, Chapter 10, verse 21, which is a a quotation from Isaiah 65. It says, but concerning Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God's long-suffering patience and love for them hit a wall of their willful, stubborn disobedience and refusal of his grace. And that is still the position of unbelieving Jews today. Now, before we leave this first point, let me make a comment or two about what our relationship to the Jews should be in their unbelief today. As you're aware, the Jews are subject to divided sympathies around the world. As we've seen in history, sometimes even whole societies have fallen into anti-Semitism. Although generally, those having a faith in the Lord Jesus have usually been friends to the Jews. But unfortunately, this has not always been the case, even for believers. In 1523, Martin Luther accused Catholics of being unfair to Jews and treating them as if they were dogs, thus making it difficult for Jews to convert. Listen to this quotation from Luther. I would request and advise that one deal gently with them. If we really want to help them, we must be guided in our dealings with them, not by papal law, but by the law of Christian love. We must receive them cordially and permit them to trade and work with us, hear our Christian teaching and witness our Christian life. If some of them should prove stiff-necked, what of it? After all, we ourselves are not all good Christians either. And yet, 15 years later, Luther was upset at rumors that Jews were trying to convert Christians to Judaism. And he concluded that converting Jews was hopeless and that since God had rejected them, one might in good conscience ignore them. His best friends begged him to stop his vitriol against the Jews. But he continued, stating near the end of his life, we are at fault for not slaying them. And what's so sad is that 400 years later, such measures and much worse were being implemented in his country by the Nazis, while the church, with few exceptions, said and did nothing. So here's a warning. Anti-Semitism 
is indeed well within the capabilities of professing believers. And we need to be careful not to support, not to condone anti-Semitism in any way. In the Church of Jesus Christ, there's no room whatsoever for anti-Semitism. Our reaction to unbelieving Jews should be exactly the same as the Apostle Paul. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. But my friends, it's also wrong when Christians take Israel's side on every issue as if they were taking the side of God. It's often taken for granted that those who believe the gospel must favor Israel politically. And so often this is a severe hindrance to the evangelization of the Arab peoples. Sympathy for Israel must never hide injustice to the Arabs. So with that said, we turn to the question that we need to get an answer to. Has God written off the Jews? Has God totally, absolutely rejected the Jews? Well, here's the answer in chapter 11. We've been thinking about so far the position of unbelieving Jews in Paul's day and in ours. Let's see next what the position of believing Jews in Paul's day and ours. Notice Paul's clear, emphatic answer to the question, did God reject his people? He says clearly, by no means. And the King James Version translates it, God forbid. God has not utterly, totally, finally cast off his people. It's unthinkable. And what follows is his proof for this emphatic statement. Proof one. Paul says, I am proof. I am proof that God has not rejected his believing people. Verse 1, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Listen to his credentials in Philippians 3. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. What he's saying is, you cannot be more Jewish than I am. So God has not cast away all his people, and I am proof of that. I was an ardent Jew. Now, I am a believing one. After my Damascus Road experience... All changed. Listen to what he went on to say in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The essence of what Paul is saying here is that I am proof that God does not and has not given up on Israel because God saved me, an Israelite. If the nation had been wholly cast away, I would have been cast away with it. 
The Apostle Paul says, even though the majority of my brethren have rejected Jesus, I'm saved. And even though the majority of them cried out, crucify him, crucify him, God has not done away with his people as a whole. I'm proof. It had pleased God to draw him to Christ. Look what he writes in verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, don't be thinking that that's just a, a throwaway sentence. He's saying that God has not cast off the true Israel, the elect within the nation. Paul says, God did not justify me because I'm a Jew, but because I'm one of God's elect from before the foundation of the world. In his grace, in his mercy, I am proof that the Lord has not rejected every Jew. Proof number two. The remnant is proof that God has not rejected his believing people. He reminds his readers and us of a historical event that took place in the time of Elijah. When you go home tonight, do some homework. Read it up. 1 Kings chapter 19. In Elijah's time, God had a remnant. The rest of Israel had rebelled against Jehovah. They had begun worshipping other gods. But God said, look at verse 4, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. When it appeared as though God's plan was down to one man, to Elijah, God still had a nucleus in Israel, a remnant with whom he was sovereignly working. And so Paul applies the illustration in verses 5 and 6. Just as there was a remnant of believers in Elijah's day, it continues to remain true with God's saving work in Israel. There is a remnant in Israel whom God has graciously chosen. There are those he has chosen by grace. He did not elect them on the basis of their works, but on the basis of his pure grace. He's making it clear that God has not forgotten his people Israel. But he's also making it clear that the remnant that are saved among them are saved by grace alone. They are the recipients of God's divine favor. There can be no mixture of works of the law, ethnicity, or any other man-made effort that can add to the full sufficiency of grace extended to us through the work of the Lord Jesus. If that were so, then it wouldn't be grace. If God justified the Jews because they were Jews, it would not be grace. God has never justified anyone on the basis of their birth certificate. And so the question Paul now faces is this. Well, Paul, if God hasn't abandoned the nation and he has this sovereign plan for her, What's going on now? How come we do not see a massive number of Jews coming to Jesus Christ? Why is it that most Jews reject Christ as the Messiah? And so under the leading of the Holy Spirit, he writes in verses 7 to 10, he gives an insight to what has happened to the majority of the Jews. They have been hardened and blinded. And he quotes some Old Testament scripture passages to underline this truth. What does it mean that they were hardened? It means that 
with each day of rebellion against God, the human heart becomes more and more calloused. It's hardened to God. The sinner becomes increasingly numb to God, more and more stubborn towards God, too smart for God, satisfied without God. And such a person has come to the conclusion that they can make their own way to God. They can't even feel or sense the truth anymore. But how did the hardening happen? I find a helpful quote, and I hope you'll find it helpful too. On the one hand, Israel hardened her heart and chose to reject Jesus, just as Pharaoh rejected God's word that Moses spoke to him. Yet on the other hand, it must be recognized that God being God hardens hearts. It's impossible to reconcile these two thoughts by human logic. But it's important that we accept both elements. The hardening of earthly Israel is because of unbelief. Their Old Testament privileges, ordinances, promises became a snare. That's what David penned. We read it there in verse 9. Their Old Testament privileges became a snare and a trap and a stumbling block to them. The unbelieving nation was ensnared by its own privileges. They relied on their birth certificates rather than God wrought repentance and faith. They were and are content in their rebellion and unbelief. And of course we live with people all around us that are that way, don't we? We can't shake them out of their sleep. It's not that they are uncomfortable because they're in unbelief. They love their unbelief. They love it. They wouldn't have it any other way. It's a restful slumber, but it's the sleep of death. And we've been thinking about the position of believing Jews in Paul's day and ours. And Paul has taught from the very beginning of this letter that a true Jew is not the one who's experienced an outward circumcision, but an inward, a circumcision of the heart. God has always preserved a remnant down through time. That remnant might not be all in the same place. We might be spread all over the world, meeting in small numbers here and there, but the remnant continues on and will continue on until Christ returns. Back to the text in verse 11, Paul reiterates the position of the Jews. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. In fact, it led to other consequences that you and I should be so thankful for. So we've thought about the position of the Jews in Paul's day and ours, and then the position of believing Jews in Paul's day and ours, which leads us on to think about the position of believing Gentiles in Paul's day and ours. And as I've said, there were consequences of the Jews' rejection of righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The outcome of the Jews stumbling over the stumbling block of the Lord Jesus, the outcome of their refusal to believe in Christ alone, was the salvation of believing Gentiles like you and me. Verse 12. 
Their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. And Paul uses two illustrations to describe what has happened, verses 16 and following. And I discovered in preparation for tonight that page upon page upon page has been written to explain what is meant in these verses. I very simply want to state the lesson Paul is teaching in a couple of sentences and then underline what follows from the lesson. The lesson is that believing Jews are holy branches from a holy root. The holy root is Abraham and the promised blessing of salvation through his seed. Those of faith are children of Abraham, his offshoots. We Gentiles, the wild olive shoots, have been grafted into the root of salvation's blessings. Ethnic Jews are the natural branches that have been removed to make room for you and I. And because believing Gentiles have been grafted into that holy root, certain things should follow. First of all, believing Gentiles, you and I, have got nothing to boast about. Paul warns us, verse 18, to be careful. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Paul is saying to believing Gentiles, do not boast because of your ingrafting. You Christian, you have nothing to boast about. It's by God's grace, God's plan, that you're now a child of Abraham. It's only by God's grace and mercy that you have been grafted into the holy root. So our prayer should be that Christ would preserve us from pride, that he would enable us to recognize that but for the grace of God, we too would reject Jesus. Yes, we've been grafted into the olive tree in the place of ethnic Jews who scorned the Savior because of their unbelief. But forbid it, Lord, that we should boast in any way. Let's be humble. We are recipients of God's grace. We believe in Gentiles are saved, not because we deserve to be, but because of God's grace. Believing Gentiles have nothing to boast about. Believing Gentiles must not consider themselves to be superior to believing Jews. Our root is Father Abraham. Our Old Testament is Jewish. Our Redeemer Jewish, the 12 apostles, Jewish. How about the apostle to the Gentiles? Surely he must be a Gentile. No, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew of the Jews. Basically, what Paul is saying is this, that you believing Gentile, you have no reason to despise the Jews, verse 18, for you have been grafted into their tree and not vice versa, because salvation is of the Jews. Yes, we Gentiles owe an incredible debt to the believing Jew, but we are in no way inferior. We are no more strangers from the covenants of promise. We are fellow citizens with Jewish believers, past, present, and future. With them, we are members of God's household. 
we are one unified people of God who together share of the same root and tree, equal covenant members. Believing Gentiles have nothing to boast about. We mustn't consider ourselves to be superior and we must not be arrogant. We're to be afraid. Why? Verse 21. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fail, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. We must never take the goodness and the kindness of our God for granted. If you know anything about the history of Israel, that's what they did. They experienced the goodness of God for a very long time, yet they became proud, thinking they deserved his goodness. And they became bold, thinking they didn't deserve his severity, which they did deserve. And as a result, they were cut off from the blessings of the good olive tree of God's grace. And Paul's warning to us is simple. Do not make the same mistake. Do not take for granted the goodness of God. Let me finish by making two applications to what we've thought about this evening. The first application is this. We ought to be confident about the continuing adding to the redeemed of believing Jews. We ought to be confident about the continuing adding to the redeemed of believing Jews. Here's the truth. All Jewish people who embrace Christ by faith will be brought into the kingdom. Paul writes in verse 23, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? This wasn't something postponed to some future date, but a present reality in Paul's day, a continuing reality Today, the remnant, Jews and Gentiles, are being saved. God continues to have his remnant. In our day, the nation of Israel is still in apostasy, but there are more Jewish believers than many of us think. Let there never be any lack of confidence in God's power to save his chosen, whether they are Jew or Gentile. And surely, what a comforting message that is for the child of God. We all have family members. We all have friends who do not love the Lord Jesus. They're not believers yet. Some are even very resistant to the gospel in every way. And yet Paul is emphatically saying here that our God has the ability to save that our God is the source of salvation, that our God is sovereign in salvation, and there is no one too hard for him to save. Never lose hope. For if we can be confident 
about the continuing adding to the redeemed of believing Jews so we can be confident that your loved one or your friend who believes can be saved. One final application, and it's this. We ought to be serious about our witness to the Jews. This passage ought to move us to a practical love for Jewish people, even as we ought to love all people and long for the salvation of all people. And certainly our attitude toward the Jew is to be one of love. We ought to have a compassionate heart for Jewish people. That means that we should evangelize Jews as aggressively as we do Gentiles. So let our interest in the modern state of Israel be neither greater nor less than our interest in other lands. A missionary to the Gentiles, a lady called Susan Perlman, she writes this. A subtle form of anti-Semitism is to deny Jewish people a hearing of the gospel and not care about their eternal destiny. We should remember that one of the reasons why we are by faith part of the family of God is revealed to us there in verse 11. Look at it again, verse 11. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Listen to Paul, make him your example. Verse 13, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. I came across a comment by an old preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and I believe what he states here is a truth. He said that there's not much in our churches to provoke any Jew to jealousy because our religion has become like theirs. It is often stagnant. It's comprised of laws and rituals and buildings. And he continues, you and I are to have such an intimate relationship with God, such a vibrant testimony that it provokes other people to become jealous of our relationship with the Savior. We're meant to lead lives that radiate such reality that unbelieving Jews and Gentiles will be provoked to spiritual jealousy. The church is to be a place where there's such a love for Jesus and such a love for each other that Jews and Gentiles become thirsty for Christ. We ought to be so alive, so full of the Savior, so full of love for each other that Jew and Gentile say to themselves, they have got something that I don't have and I must have it. What a challenge. But we take great comfort as believers we take great comfort as a church that as we faithfully declare this gospel, our Lord's sheep will hear his voice and they will come to him and he will give them eternal life. Maybe you want to know tonight how you can be part of God's unique people. The only requirement, my friend, is that you embrace the Messiah. You've got to trust 
in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you know tonight that God has been calling out to you in these days, I want to encourage you to respond. You can be forgiven of your sin by simple faith in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. But my friends, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, doesn't matter. What does matter is whether or not you belong to Jesus. If we have a saving relationship with him, then we are Abraham's seed. We are heirs according to the promise. And then one day we will be in the midst of that great number that we read about at the very start of the service that no one will be able to count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out in worship, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Believing Jew, believing Gentile, one people, the people of God, all the redeemed, with all their robes made white in the blood of the Lamb, worshiping around the throne of God in heaven. It's hard to visualize, isn't it? It's hard to visualize this. But one day, one day it will happen. What a glorious prospect for the believing Jew and Gentile. My friend, is it something, is it an event you're looking forward to? Is it? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Let's pray together.